And uh, I agree with Mike. It's great to have uh, the church's fellowship together. And we enjoy being with you and seeing what the Lord is doing here. And every once in a while, someone's coming through town that you know. And you think, well, it's just not fair for us to be blessed. we got to call Mike and let him know about this guy. And so it happens. I said, Mike, a friend, dear friend of ours is coming through town. Steve Fernandez and his wife Karen, they're here with us tonight. They were with us over at Great uh, Fate, Fellowship Bible Church this morning. And, uh, yeah, I, I saw that. And uh, the preaching of the Word of God was wonderful. Let me tell you a couple things about uh, Steve and Karen. They have uh, two daughters and a son, and he's the pastor of Community Bible Church in Vallejo, California. Had the opportunity to be there a couple times. Uh, um, And we're both, our two churches are both kind of church plant type things, and so he knows where we've been. He started out with 20 people and now has 1,000. So there's hope for us, right? But we want to see the maturity maturing of the saints as well as the numbers and that's what steve is all about steve's also has a connection with you because his church has a ministry it's a mission agency called exalting christ missions and they send out the pattersons or they we send them out but they go through that mission and uh, steve this church supports the pattersons as well and the work in Mita, mike has been to honduras and some of the guys here uh also there's another connection you know your pastor mike has been to uh burma is getting ready to go again and steve's also been to burma a couple times with brother chris williams so there are some connections he's also the president and founder of cornerstone seminary in vallejo at the church and uh that might interest you as well because you have four or five maybe more next year right uh, men at the Expositor Seminary, and that was patterned after the Cornerstone Seminary. So a lot of little teeny connections in a big world. It's still small in God's eyes. He's controlling all the little pieces and bringing us together for ministry and maturing. And so uh, without saying anything more, Steve Fernandez, our dear brother, would you come and open God's word to us tonight? It's a delight to be here. I'm honored. I said that this morning, and I meant it, and I, I, I'll say it again tonight. Mike, thank you very much for having us. I'm honored to be here. Uh, I, I, it's really something. I can't believe I'm in Florida preaching. That's not normally why I come to Florida. So, uh, But uh, it, it's just a, a, a joy. Yes, I'm a church planner. We, we started with 20 people, and I, I look at what you've got in this nice room, and I saw what you had, and we didn't start out like that. We started out in a dungy, dusty dance hall with the beer smell and the. I mean, you got that here too. And uh, and I mean, I, uh, you looked like a better crowd of people than I started with. Uh, you know, it's been a number of years, so I found out a lot of those people weren't what I thought they were. And uh, so, yes, I've been through everything. If you can make a mistake in the ministry, I've made it, and I'm still standing. Isn't Jesus wonderful? I am still standing, Mike. And uh, I mean it. Karen thinks, my wife, that if you look mistake up in the dictionary, my picture's there. (laughs) It's probably true. I haven't bothered to check it. If it is there, she mailed it in. (laughs) And so turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10. The title of the sermon is The Sufficiency of Christ in the Sufferings of His People. For believers, it's a famous verse. It's verse 13, which I'll read. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. There was a book that came out in the 1980s called When Bad Things Happen to Good People by a rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner. It was a bestseller. When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was described by reviewers as, quote, touching, heartwarming, wise, and compassionate. A book all humanity needs. In the book, in that particular book, he was trying to make sense out of a tragedy in his own family, a great loss in his own family. And he concluded, being a Jewish man, a rabbi, that the author of the book of Job, which of course is about Job's great sufferings, that the author of the book of Job, quote, was forced to choose between a good God who's not totally powerful or a powerful God who's not totally good. He says that's really the only choices. And so he chose to believe that God was good, he just wasn't totally powerful. Kushner says this, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes even he can't bring that about. It's too difficult for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. And that was his conclusion. Of course, we know that is simply not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a sovereign God who is all-powerful, omnipotent in his power, and he's also good, infinitely good. And so that's what this text is about. It's about people who've been overtaken. Notice the word. It's not mild when something overtakes you. It's strong. They've been overtaken by troubles, trials, and temptations. And Paul's going to give them a perspective about God, that God is in control of everything. That's his point. And that he's also good to his people. He will provide a way of escape. But this verse, verse 13, is part of a chapter. It's in a context. And what he's concerned about is that people, because they're in trouble, have a spiritual fall. They cave in under it. They quit. They turn their backs on the Lord or whatever. They fall into some sin. Look at verse 12. Now, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not what? Fall. And then comes verse 13. So you can see that a spiritual fall for a believer is a great danger and it's a real possibility when there's overconfidence because in verse 12, these people think they're standing. You think you're the person that could never fall. You're the person that can never cave in. You're the one they ought to be writing a book about. In your, in your mind, perhaps, or my mind. I mean, we do that kind of thing. And so he's trying to tell us that a spiritual fall is a real possibility when you're overconfident and you're pushing your liberty. You're stretching what you can do. You're right out on the edge of what you think you can do. And that's the context of one through 11. Remember 1 through 11? 
I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That would be the great cloud that God manifested himself in when they came out of Egypt and passed through the sea. You've seen the movie. And all are baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. God kept providing daily food. All drank the same drink out of the rock, remember, which was Christ. With most of them, nonetheless, even though they had all that provision, all that supply from God, it turned out in the end he wasn't pleased with many of them. They happen as an example to us. And then he tells you what we need to be careful with, that we can fall into. We can crave evil things as they craved. We can be idolatrous as some of them were. The people sat down to eat and drink and sit up to play. Let us not act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a day. Nor let us test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Now, this is amazing. He talks about idolatry, immorality, testing God, and he throws in with it grumbling. Now, if you've been in the ministry long, you know that's as big as the rest of them. Grumbling can destroy a church. And he throws it in there with the rest. And he's warning us that we can do all four of these things. A Christian can do all four of those things. Why else does he say, watch out, take heed that you don't fall in verse 12. Fall into what? What he just mentioned. What else? Context. That's one of the first things we're taught, right? Context. Fall into what? into the things he just mentioned. Yes, Christians can become idolatrous and put God out of their mind and worship something else without calling it idolatry. Yes, they can commit immorality. Yes, they can test God. And yes, they can grumble. And all the while, they're pushing the limits on these things because they think they're really standing. They're just pressing it. They're pushing it right to the edge. Playing with fire, see, is what he's talking about, like Israel did. And then he goes, no temptation has overtaken you. So he realizes that the Corinthians, you got to understand their culture. It was a debauched, immoral city. And they had relatives and they had friends and they had past associates and past friendships, just like we do. And they were being influenced. And he knows that these things can come on them suddenly. And so he warns them about it here to try to tell them about the sovereignty of God and also the goodness of God that he'll make provision in the middle of all our troubles. That's what he's talking about. So how far you've grown and how much you've experienced God's blessing exempt you from absolutely nothing. That's what he's saying. And presumption, self-confidence, and a false security that you're the person that never could do this stuff is exactly what will precede it when you do do it. That's what he's saying. Because you've got a blind side. Sounds like the name of a good movie. Doesn't it? you got a blind side. So he, he says the spiritual fall is a great danger. And then he reminds them about the sovereignty of God. It's all introduction, by the way. He reminds him about the sovereignty of God. God is in control of your troubles. Nothing is overcoming you. But such God is faithful in that trouble. He's not going to allow it to be any more or any longer in duration and degree than he permits. 
And in the middle of it, he's going to provide so that you can escape through it, not out of it. And you'll still be standing when it's all done. That's what he's saying. So the sovereignty of God is the source of great trumpet in our tr- comfort in our trials. God controls what we go through and how long we go through it. It won't be a degree more intense nor a day longer or a day shorter than he wants your trial to be. Because we believe in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is that great truth that God is in control, quoting Jerry Bridges. He does whatever pleases him and determines what we can do and what we plan. He has absolute independence. He does as he pleases. He has absolute control over the actions of his creatures. Small and supposedly insignificant and great all the time. He controls them all. And the Bible's filled with this teaching. It's a heart in the heart of man. Uh, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his step. Proverbs 16, 9. The Lord's going to determine your steps. You can plan your course. Go ahead and plan it. But in the end, you're going to take a single step he didn't want you to take overall. Many are the plans in a man's heart. It's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, 21. Lamentations is one of the great ones. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? This is Jeremiah lamenting, remember. That's why it's called the Lamentations. Jeremiah lamenting over the destruction of Jerusalem. The, 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 the great calamity of the fall of that city and all the misery and all the tragedy. And he says, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and evil proceed? Good and evil, ultimately? In the final sense, I form light, God says in Isaiah, and I create darkness. I make peace and I create calamity. He's not morally responsible for the calamity. But there's not going to be a calamity that's going to sneak by him and happens accidentally. That's what he means. I, the Lord, do all these things. So we know that we have a God that's sovereign. But we all know something else in this verse. That we have a God that's sufficient. And he's good. He never promised us we wouldn't have trouble. He never promised us we wouldn't be disappointed and have trials. We are in a fallen world. That's why a Savior came into the world. We have a Redeemer because the world has fallen. It's under a curse. But we have in the midst of it this promise of a sufficient Savior who is all sufficient for the sufferings of his people. That's what he's talking about. So how does this work? First, God permits, and you could go further and say, ordains trials, troubles, and testings that come into our life for our good. The devil can't sneak in the back door to tempt you. He's not sovereign. He's not God. He's not all-knowing. Martin Luther said, when asked what he thought of the devil, He said, the devil is God's little devil. He's God's little devil. Because to God, he's just a little devil. Kind of like your kids. Just a little devil. At least in California, they laugh. (laughs) Our kids aren't as well trained as yours. We got a church full of them. Yes, we 
we do. It's good to be on vacation. Okay, <laughs> he permits and ordains testings to come into our lives for our good. Now remember these troubles in 13, temptation can also be, paresmos can also be a trial, just a, a trouble as well as a temptation. Troubles usually cause the temptations. It concerns believers parallel to what he's described about Israel in the previous verses. And when he speaks of them, he speaks of them as being certain. There's a certainty to them. He doesn't say, if it overtakes you. No temptation has overtaken you. There doesn't seem to be any if here. So if you're not in trouble, cheer up. You soon will be. You won't be left out. No temptation overtakes you, but such as is common to man. You notice he doesn't speak of it as theoretical and a possibility. He speaks of it as a certainty. There's no if about the overtaking. And then he uses a term, overtake, which is often translated of something that grabs hold of someone. It's controlling. Uh, it, it, in other words, it's to such a degree that it's not like a mosquito flying around your head that you swat off. It's something that grabs hold of your life, affects your life, even dominates your life. Because he uses a strong term, overtake. And the word, for example, it's a perfect tense of the verb, which means it takes you and it doesn't let go of you. It's not one of those mild kind of things. You know, the car didn't start, right? Or somebody forgot to get ice cream. And you're irritated or, no, it's not that kind of stuff. This is serious. It, it's translated in Luke, for example, the same word of that incident where it says a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams when the father was trying to tell Jesus about his boy. It's the same word. It takes over the little boy, and the boy falls and screams. Now, that kind of sounds like us in some of our troubles. But the point is, it's strong. It's got a hold of you. This isn't a minor thing. And it's got you thinking whether it's even worth it. See, you could fall. It's big enough to where, remember verse 12? It's big enough. That your mind is starting to think thoughts you never thought you could think. You know who scares me the most? Myself. Don't you scare yourself the most? Don't look at me all sweet and holy. Am I right? It's amazing, isn't it? There was a saying a few decades ago, and I loved it. We have found the enemy, and it is us. Some high hippie coined that. It's true. Some cartoonist. He, he's describing something that grabs hold of people to where they're having trouble dealing with it. They're having trouble dealing with it. And they're thinking things that they can't believe they're thinking. Why else does he say, take heed lest you what? Fall. 
You're thinking of things you can't believe you're thinking of. It's a test, nonetheless, designed by God to demonstrate and develop Christ-likeness in us. Because that's what all testings. And it came from God. It's not an accident. He's sovereign. I'm a teacher. I've taught for years. And I give tests. And I tell the guys, this doesn't have to be a trial. It's a test. If you haven't studied, it's a trial. That's when it's a trial. If we're weak, if we're not close to the Lord, if we don't turn back to the Lord, if we don't make ourselves strong in the Lord and in His grace, it can become a trial, a great, great trial. That's what He's worried about. That's what He's concerned about here. Jesus said, lead us... uh, Lead, told them to pray, lead us not into temptation. Same word. But here's what he says else. This kind of an experience, this kind of an experience is a common experience. For he says, no temptation overtakes you, that kind, but such as is common to man. It's a common experience, which means there's hope for you. Because it means others have gone through troubles. Listen. They've gone through troubles and stood. Christ enabled them to stand. They didn't fail. They didn't fall. In other words, your particular trial is not unique. Now, the exact details of your trial might be different. But if it's a marriage trial, the details differ your marriage trial is not uncommon. If it's children trials, money trials, health trials, you can name it. The particular little small details that make your trial your trial might be a little different. But the basic situation, countless thousands have been through before and crisis sustained them. My sister-in-law had scoliosis, curvature of the spine. And if you have that young, she had it young, of course, you're born with it. It just keeps curving almost into a U. And she knew it. So this is in the late 70s, maybe early 80s. She decided, and her husband, my brother, we got to find a surgeon. I don't want my wife to grow into a curvature and have that hunchback. They had to slice her down the back 18 inches. I've seen the scar. Right down the back. Peel open her back and put a 14-inch steel rod in her back. They told her everything, can you imagine? She decided to do it. She was going to have to wear a cast. There's pictures of her in those days, a little bit different, that went from her hips over her back all the way over her head like one of the Star Wars troopers. Maybe that's where he got the image of that. (laughs) She walked around like that for months. This is my brother John's wife, Kim. So they went into the doctor, and they're sitting there, and she goes, I'd like to ask you one question. Two questions, excuse me. This is really true. Now, what would you ask? 
Doctor, I just have two questions. Two questions. Question number one. Have you ever done this before? Question number two. How many of them were successful? That's all she wanted to know. Have you done this before? And were they successful? That's what he's saying here. God says, I've had people like you with trouble like you thousands of times. And I've always been successful. The doctor said, yes, I've done it before. 3,000 times. I can do them in my sleep. Have you? How many of them have been successful? And he told her, all 3,000. She goes, let's get it on. That's what's going on here. You think God hasn't brought somebody through your troubles before? You don't think he's brought somebody like you close to him and empowered you and given you wisdom and given you strength so you stood and glorified him all the way through it before? That's what he's saying. The particular trial is not unique, though the details of it, the small details are. I'm, I'm to the point in ministry, 29 years in one church. I think I've heard it all. I'm unshockable. I look at people now, I go, pass the coffee. <laughs> I'm unshockable. I don't even want to begin to tell you. I'm from California. <laughs> Come on. Everyone's well, I'll come home, they'll lay in bed, and they'll say, Karen, I got to tell you this. <laughs> I'm shocked. I am still shockable. Gosh, I meet some losers. San Francisco Bay Area, come on. The purpose of the trial is to conform us to Christ to give him glory. The power to stand is in Christ. For Paul says in Philippians, I can do all things through him who what? Strengthens me. In Ephesians 6.10, in the evil day, put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So that's the first thing. He ordains, he permits and even ordains troubles for he's sovereign. Secondly, he promises to be faithful to us in and through our trials. But God is faithful. Now, faithfulness is an attribute of God. It doesn't say God becomes faithful. That's huge. If it says he is something, it's what he is. It's not what he becomes. You see the difference? It's what he is. An attribute in the being of God is what God is in his constitutional inherent nature. You don't work yourself up to be what you are. You understand? It's what you are in your being. It's not something contrary to what you're inclined. It is the nature of your being if it's something that you possess as an attribute. It's in his nature. It's inhering in his 
constitutional being, his basic nature to be faithful. He doesn't become it. He doesn't learn it. He doesn't increase in it. It's just what he is. Fish swim, birds fly. God is faithful. It's what he does. And he doesn't work himself up to be it. You see, here's what it's like with us. Somebody disappoints us. Somebody betrays us. Somebody hurts us. And you start thinking, do I really want them? Do I want to be loyal to them? You see, you and I aren't in our nature faithful. It's what we learn to be. It's what we become. That's not God. It's what he is. Now remember, what he is, he is infinitely in every attribute. Remember, every single attribute he possesses, he possesses them to an infinite degree. Otherwise, he's not God. We can possess attributes. We can be loving. We have knowledge. We have limitation. We have power. But they're all limited. They're not in infinite. The thing that makes him what he is, is he's infinitely each one of these things and He's immutable, remember? He can't become less faithful. Because if he becomes less faithful, he changed. And he can't change because he's immutable. So the way we live this week did not determine the degree that he'll be faithful to us. Isn't that amazing? Do you know anybody else like that? Do you know anyone else like that? That's why Paul said this. If you're faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. He doesn't even say, that's 2 Timothy 2.13. He doesn't even say, if you're faithful, he remains faithful, for he will keep his promises. It's more basic than his promises. His promises reflect his faithfulness. It's more basic than his promises. His promises are promises because he is what he is. He doesn't say he won't, he'll keep his promises. He says he's going to be faithful to you and I because he can't not be what he is. Think about that. He can't not be faithful to you. That's unreal to me. That is glorious. Man, I got loud. Amazing. What a what a being. He says, I'm gonna be faithful to you. You know, in the Bible, God is called the Holy One. And when he's called the Holy One, I don't think it means he's morally pure holy most of the time. Uh I agree, and it's a good guy to agree with, I agree with D.A. Carson, that the fundamental significance of God being holy, fundamental, and there's secondary meanings to being holy, but the fundamental significance of God being holy is that he's completely unique. The root word for holy is other. You guys know this. Separate. Remember? 
So there's a moral ramification to holiness. We, we become, practically speaking, holy, but there's something more r- basic to God's nature. His holiness is that he is without comparison. There's no one like him. He's completely what? Other. So when in Isaiah they, what is it, the cherubim, cherubim go, holy, 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 they don't mean morally pure, morally pure, morally pure. They mean completely incomparable, completely separate, completely unique. Now you can prove that. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It's he who sits above the earth, the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He reduces rulers to nothing. He makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. He merely blows on them and they wither. The storm carries them away like stubble. To whom will you liken me? Who are you going to compare me with? That I would be as equal, says the Holy One. See? That's what he means. That's the basic meaning. Who's like me? So then he takes, David does, the attribute of faithfulness and says this. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. You're faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. This is Psalm 89. That was Isaiah 40. Who in the skies is comparable to you? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord, greatly to be feared, awesome above all those who are around him? O Lord of hosts, who is like you? Your faithfulness surrounds you. Who who is faithful like you? And he applies it to faithfulness. You're incomparably faithful. It's what you are. God is not going to leave you alone in your troubles for he is faithful it's what he is he's not even working it up and going you know Steve you blew it again you've been saved so long and you know so much and think you do and here you go again I've had it with you and then he has second thoughts says you know ah Ah, I've changed my mind. I'm going to hang in there one more time with you. That's not how it works. He doesn't work himself up. He doesn't talk himself into it. It's what he is. He's faithful. Now, one other thing here. He says, God is faithful. And then he adds, in verse 13, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Thirdly, he says, he will protect you. He's going to limit the degree of the trial and the duration of the trial so that it won't go beyond what you're able to handle in his strength. So he's going to control the circumstances. He's going to control the people. As mean as they've been, there's not as mean as they could be. That's what he's saying. As unkind as someone's been, I've controlled the degree of their unkindness to what you can handle. As evil as they've been, they could be more evil. 
I'm controlling it. And I'm controlling what happens to you, and I'm controlling how long it happens. Now, it just doesn't seem like it. I remember when our church split in 1988. It just literally blew up. After six years, it grew to 300 people. We had three full-time staff. We went to two services. I was just waiting to be discovered. And it just blew up. Body parts everywhere. <laughs> you know, just blew up. Just blew up. And, I, and there was nothing I could do about it. I couldn't save it. Started with 20 people, and I sat on Freeway 80, that the main artery across the nation goes all the way to New York City. And I sat on this hill out of our town called Hunter Hill. And I sat up there in my car, and I begged God to let me leave that town. I pled with him. I don't want to go back. I can look right down on the city up on this hill. I said, there's nothing but pain down there. There's nothing but misery down there. I don't want to go back. And I was crying. I was holding on to the steering wheel. Lord, just get me out of this town. And I got done crying and sobbing. And I did. I knew what God said. You get yourself back down there. And you get yourself down there now. <laughs> and I knew it. I knew it. And after God taught me everything and broke me and humbled me and poured me out. He blessed the socks off of me. He controlled exactly what would happen and how it would happen with perfection. Now I want to show you this is what Christ does with his people. Turn to John 18. Look at this incident. Jesus had spoken these words. He went forth, John 18, 1, with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Jesus, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers, so he's got the, the guards and all the officers with their weapons, and the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches. It's a mob, a controlled mob. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon them, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, of course, Jesus knew who they were seeking. He told Judas at the dinner, What you're going to do, go do it and do it what? Quickly. He knew who they were seeking. What's this? They answered, Jesus is Nazareth, and he said, I am he. And Judas, who was betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's the name of God. And they involuntarily all fall down like they'd passed out. That's the name of God. So he gives a demonstration to his disciples that he is the God before whom men fall as if dead. Then they stand up. This is an amazing thing. He then asked them again, whom do you seek? Now that's twice, and they've already told him. What is he doing, friends? Why is he doing this? 
Watch this. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And so if you seek me, let these go their way. He made them say twice. Ah, we've come to get Jesus of Nazareth. He made them say it in front of people, heard by all, so that the official summons would only be him and they couldn't arrest the 11. He was making sure they wouldn't arrest the 11. They could have arrested the 11. Why? To fulfill the word which he spoke in verse 9, of those whom you've given me, I have lost not one. You see, if they had been arrested, he would have lost them. So he controlled what was done to them and how long it was done to them. And he made sure that as bad as their troubles were that night, as bad as their disappointment was that night, for they were going to be crushed and their hope would be destroyed, they thought, that night. It would not be as bad as they thought because he did not allow them to arrest them. And he controlled the whole thing. And then they took him. Did you see it? He controlled the whole thing. He made sure they wouldn't get arrested because he knew if they get arrested, they can't handle this. So as bad as their disappointment was, as bad as their trials were, as bad as their sufferings were going to be, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And he made sure. And he still does that. The reason it's not worse is he's sheltering you. Absolutely. We have a sovereign God and a gentle Savior, don't we? And he said he did that. And then he said to protect them. And then lastly, he says he'll make a provision that we might be able to escape. A provision to escape. But the provision of escape is not the escape of the trial, but the escape of the fall. Because you ha this escape involves what? Not getting out of it, but what? Enduring it. So the escape is you won't fall. You're not going to crash and burn. He's going to make sure you don't crash and burn. Go to him. Go back to him. Don't go away from him. He makes the way of escape. And what does he provide? He will make provision. Brothers and sisters, what does he provide? He provides himself. Of course he does. He provides himself. Through the word of God, yes. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. 1 John 2, 14. Yes, it's through the word of God. Through prayer, yes. Thessalonians says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who's loved us, given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, strengthen you. Yes, it's by prayer. Yes, it's by the word. But the prayer and the word bring his presence. They bring his presence. And it's his presence. It's himself that sustains you. Now, you know this is true. It's his presence through the word and through prayer. 
you know the account, for example, of the three boys that refused to bow before the great King Nebuchadnezzar with the great gold statue in the field there in the plain. And the boys wouldn't, they struck the band and the boys wouldn't bow. So they took the three young boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they threw them in the furnace and they heated it up seven times. And the king sat there and it was so hot that two men were burned to death throwing them in there. You know this. And you know that's not just a story. It's teaching us something. And the king said, how many did you throw in there? He said, we threw in three. He goes, I see four. There's a fourth one. Like a son of the gods in there. Who's that in there with him? Who was in there with him? And he was terrified. Remember? And when they brought him out, their clothes weren't even what? Singed. He provides himself. I won't leave you orphans, he said. I'll come to you. Remember? So brothers and sisters, do we need to just bow in prayer now and ask God to help us glorify him in our troubles so he can get all the glory and somebody can see power that they don't understand where it's coming from. And they can see love that they don't know why they're still getting. And they can see forgiveness when they shouldn't be forgiven. And they'll finally say, what is it? What is it about you? That's what I deal with my brother finally, by the way. Remember I told you. We tell that. And, uh, and he'll be glorified. Let's pray. Father, you don't become faithful. You don't learn to be faithful. You are faithful. And so is your son. And you've controlled the exact duration of our troubles, the exact intensity of those troubles, so that we can glorify you in front of people. Because it's not all about how well everything goes every day. It's about heaven and hell and glorifying Christ. But we can trust you with our lives. You will give us good things. You're a kind God, and you'll give us joy. So be glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen.